John chapter 6 continues to lead us this morning in our service when we read these words. As a result of this, strong statements Christ made about eating his flesh, gnawing on his flesh and the like. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said, therefore, to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Brothers and sisters, to whom shall we go? I could have this past week, like many across the U.S., prepared a wonderful message from my own heart and gave you such wonderful, inspiring words that might have given you, uh, you know, goosebumps down your spine. But brothers and sisters, what good is that? That's not eternal life. We go to Christ for that, and which is Christ in his word. So this morning, let us indeed lay aside those any and all desires for anything other, and let us go before our God this morning, seeking to fellowship with him. Just a sight of Christ by faith is all that we would desire. With that, I'd encourage you to turn with me, if you would, if you would in your Bibles, the book of Esther, chapter 5. Esther 5 is the text that we're currently on, and um, it's a wonderful little passage, shorter than a lot of them, of the chapters we've been looking at, but filled certainly to the full. Brothers and sisters, this is God's Word. I'm going to read the first two verses. Let me ask you to uh, invite you to stand together with me as we read this God's Word. Hear now the Word of our King. Now it came about... On the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And it happened when the king saw Esther, the queen standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight, and the king extended to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the privilege that you've given us now to fellowship with you. Lord, we are faithless. It won't be very long before every one of us begins to wander in our minds. Lord, I pray that you grant us your grace. Holy Spirit, draw near that we would not wander. But because of your faithfulness, Lord, that we would be faithful this morning. And that you'd enable us, O Lord, to do more than just simply listen and and learn, but that, Lord, we would have a greater glimpse of Christ. That you'd open our eyes to behold you in the pages of this chapter, or in the words of this chapter. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week I referenced 1 Peter 4, 19, and you know the verse, I think. The verse says, therefore, let those also um, who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. As you know from last week, the word entrust is the word used in the financial districts for a deposit in a bank. And so when you entrust your souls to God, you're called to deposit your souls to God. Now, in the ancient world, they entrusted or they deposited money in a bank. They did have a banking system for two reasons. I mentioned this last week. One is for protection. And the other 
was that it would grow for growth. The banks typically paid 6% interest in that day. And thus our call today from Peter is, and we saw last week what Esther did, was to entrust our souls, to deposit our souls with God. And that implies a couple of things. One, it involves releasing control. You know, when you take money and put it in a, a bank, you don't put it in and then go inside and talk to the manager and say, okay, I want to know how you're protecting my money. You do all that beforehand. If you don't think it's a good place, you don't put it. But if you think that it is, you release control. You give your money up and you don't touch it. You let it go. Trusting it'll be there when you want it. And secondly, it also involves um, submission. You don't deposit money in a bank and then go there and say, now I want to see how you're going to grow. What are you investing in? How are you going to uh, multiply the, uh, the money? You do that beforehand. You decide whether or not that's a good or a tangible investment, and then you put it in and you submit to what's going to happen with, with God. When it comes to the growth of our souls, we don't say, God, you can't do this. Or maybe I shouldn't say we don't say. We shouldn't say, God, you should do this or do this. We say, Lord, I give you my soul. Grow it according to your will. Now, it's that latter part that's really difficult. And the difficulty is compounded when we discover how God grows faith. Let me read you a verse that you know, most of you do at least. Um, Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer. Did you know God saved you to suffer? Now why would God save you to suffer? I thought God loved us. Why, Why would he have us suffer? Well... As you grow in your walk, you're going to come to this conviction. I hope, I hope y'all are coming to the conviction. James 1, listen to it. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you, can, when you encounter various trials knowing. Now the word here is gnosko, which is that growth, that, that, that relational knowledge. As you and I suffer, we learn that, that, that through the testing of our faith, it produces endurance. The text goes on to talk about how it grows us. Brothers and sisters, why is it that God saved us to suffer? Because you and I are coming to learn and grow as we learn about Christ, that that's the way our faith actually grows. Faith grows not on a, in a posh environment. It only grows in trial and difficulty, such that Paul says in Romans 5, and here he doesn't use gnosko, Here he says, once again, using the uh, um, we, let us, um, he uses oida, which means we know this a certainty. It is a certainty. You know the text. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about a perseverance. Brothers and sisters, how does God grow faith? He grows it by tempering it, by trying it, by causing us to go through times of suffering. In trial. That's how God grows it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Problem with, with Pain, I referenced last week, didn't reference this quote. Let me read it to you. I'm progressing along the path of life in my ordinary, contentedly fallen and godless a condition. I love that uh, description. When suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease or a headline in the newspaper that threatens us all with destruction, World War II, 
sends this whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I'm overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like, like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. And perhaps by God's grace, I succeed and for a day or two become creature, um, become a creature conscientiously dependent on God and drawing in strength from the right sources. But the moment the threat is withdrawn, my whole nature ke- uh, leaps back to the toys. Thus, the terrible ne- necessity of tribulation is only too clear. That's why Paul says, we know. God has had me for but 48 hours and then only by dint of taking everything else away from me, only by the threat of that, God has me. Let him but sheath that sword for a moment and I behave like a puppy when the hated bath is over. Another beautiful metaphor here. I shake myself as dry as I can and race off to reacquire my comfortable dirtiness. If not in the nearest manure heap, at least in the nearest flower bed. And that is why Tribulations cannot cease until God sees us remade. I hope you're learning that. I hope you're coming to know that, James. And I hope that you know that today, Romans. That that's how God grows faith. And we see that in the text before us this morning. This whole passage, or or one of the things we're going to glean from this uh, passage, um, demonstrates, reflects that very point. Esther 5 is a transitional chapter, okay? So there, there are many sermons you could preach out of this passage. In fact, I'm going I'm to, in essence, preach three this morning. Uh, same time frame, okay? But, it, but in essence, three, because Esther 5 um, picks up from Esther 2 or, or 3 and 4. So 3 and 4 lead to 5, but 5 leads to chapters 6 and 7. So it's a transitional chapter. And what we read in here is the cleanup from chapter 3 and 4, but the preparation for 6 and 7. And so it's that transitional chapter. And it contains, therefore, these incredible statements of beautiful things. We're going to see three things. You got the outline. We're going to look at, at, at the boldness of faith, Esther's boldness. We're going to look at Haman's disdain, but we're going to learn about the insatiable nature of sin. And then we're going to look at Mordecai. And there we're going to learn about God's providential will, how he brings it to pass. As this whole book is about God's providence, that's why I've chosen to make that the title of this sermon. But let's look at each section. First, verses 1 through uh, 8, Esther's boldness or the boldness of faith. Verse 1, now it came about on the third day, not after the third day, that's important, on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes, stood in the inner corner of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms, and the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. Now, I have not referenced this before, but it needs to be referenced, and this is the place to uh, to do it. And that is, the book of Esther speaks with amazing um, detail and description with regards to Persia, the capital city of Susa, the the, uh, throne room, etc., etc. It uses the language of Persia back in the 6th century B.C. Now, why that's important for you and me is because liberals... Say Esther was written in the, in the 3rd century B.C., 
you know, what's the point? Why, why are you confusing me with all this? Because, brothers and sisters, if it's written in the 3rd century B.C., it's just a story. It didn't really happen. It's just a nice, inspiring story. You know, just like I might tell about dinosaurs, Skippy and Rex, that my wife used to tell our, our kids. It didn't happen, but something to, to, you know, amuse and entertain. Brothers and sisters, you can't say that about this book. This book is saturated with, with, with language and terms clearly of someone who was an eyewitness of the capital. I mean, look at the language here. Esther stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. How would they know that unless they saw that? And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace. Brothers and sisters, this detail gives credibility to this book. It's a stamp of authentication. Just like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, when he says, you know, over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you don't write that. You can't say over 500 people saw him, and um, if it didn't happen, why? Because people are going to go, really? Well, where are they? Well, they're all over the place. 500 people saw his resurrection, saw him in his resurrected glory. Likewise, here, you don't give this specificity. You don't detail this at the time of the writing when this was written, 6th century, unless it actually happened. Because there, there are too many people who, who would say, no, that didn't happen. So if it's written in the 6th uh, century, um, uh, um, or 4th, I, I, actually, I'm sorry, 5th, um, then indeed, um, this is what exactly happened. Um, as glorious as this story is. That being said, this text says, Esther, on the day, on the third day of her fast, she stood in the throne room. Verse 2. And it happened when the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. And that's just, uh, to say, I'm submitting uh, to you. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it will be given uh, to you. All right, a couple things. Half of the kingdom. Brothers and sisters, that's a colloquialism. He's not promising you anything up to half of the kingdom. If my wife came to me and said, hey, Greg, or someone that you want to please came to you and said, hey, would you do me a favor? You might say, I'll do anything you want me to do to let them know I am so happy to help you. Now, if they said literally, will you rob a bank? Well, of course not. Right? Will you jump off a cliff and live? No, but you understand what that means. It means I'll do anything. I am so willing to serve you. That's what he's saying here. He goes, I'll give you up to half of the uh, kingdom. Secondly, notice he sees that something's troubling Esther. Now, we're going to see there's two reasons for that. One, that she risked life. Her, she put her life on the line to come and talk to him. That, that is, that's bold, okay? So he knows something's up. If she wants to come to me at the risk of her life. But secondly, the way she looks. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. So he says, man, what is troubling you? What's going on? And that leads us to verse 4. And Esther said, if it please the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared And as they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther a second time, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. 
All right, a couple points on this verse. When the text says that she prepared the meal, that doesn't mean she cooked it. That means as queen, she made sure that the meal was ready and organized and ready to go when, if, if and when the king responded favorably to her. Secondly, notice it talks about while they're sipping wine. According to the culture of Persia, that would have been after the meal. So most likely, um, Xerxes, Ahasuerus, Haman, Xerxes and Ahasuerus are one, okay? Xerxes, Haman, and Esther are now sitting on the couches, and they're sipping wine. And at this point, the king then find, turns and says, Honey, Esther, what's, what's your request? Up to half of the kingdom, whatever you want, I'll give it to, to you. All right? And uh, at this point then, Esther answers. Notice verse 7 through 8. So Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor on the side of the king... And it pleased the king to grant my petition to do what I request. This is in contrast to Esther, brothers and sisters. He wanted a submissive queen. Look at this glorious queen. Um, in contrast to, not Esther, in contrast to um, Vashti, his first wife, right? What a contrast. He wanted a, Vashti was too outgoing. This woman comes in and she understands, man, if I have found favor, and if, and if uh, you, know, you know, et cetera, et cetera, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. All right, at first it looks like Esther lost her nerve, doesn't it? All right, she is this big buildup, you know, what do you want, queen? You're troubled. I want a banquet. You got it. Let's do the banquet. We're sitting, it's done, sipping wine. What do you want, queen? Another banquet? <laughs> yeah. um, I'm losing nerve, but the context doesn't allow that. Okay, first, last chapter, brothers and sisters, she had that spiritual awakening, the spiritual growth where she uh, ends up culminating by saying, if I die, I die. Lord, my life is yours. I've entrusted my soul to you. If I die, I die. If you're in that mindset, you're not going to worry about dying here. So why are you being so worried here, sister? Secondly, she then risked her life by going to the king without a summons. Um, if, if indeed she's so willing to do that, you, we, uh, we can't say here she lost her nerve. That's, that does, just does not fit the context. Well, then what's going on? Guys, I've got, I would say, th- uh, two-thirds, if not more, of my commentaries gave the same answer as to what's going on. In essence, what, what they say is that Esther is using her ability, which we saw that from the, uh, the introduction. This woman was given the ability to influence people by her person. She was very good at influencing people, at pleasing people, at getting them to do, uh, at, 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 uh, for them to say, wow, you're the most amazing person. That was one thing that she had. Well, sanctified by God's grace, she's using her ability to influence people in a masterful way here. Let me give you one selection of one of the commentaries that I've got. Again, two-thirds of them reference this. This one, I think, does it the best. Ian DeGuid put it this way. Why didn't Esther strike while the iron was hot? Did she simply lose her nerve and so fail to make the request when the opportunity was there? Perhaps, but there's a more likely explanation. Esther was playing the king like a a trophy fish, taking her time and not rushing to reel him, him into her net. 
She was carefully uh, maneuvering him into a position where he would be virtually obligated. This is masterful. He would be obligated to do whatever she asked without his even being aware that he had been hooked. He had now, now twice publicly, verse 3, verse 6, um, uh, I can't read it because of my eyes, uttered to, uh, uttered to uh, grant um, um, Esther whatever she uh, desired up to half his kingdom. Her response was a, was a study in meekness and an attribute she knew the king valued in women. She began, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king, verse 8, making the king feel as if he were in full control of his fate. Once again, in contrast to Vashti. Since all she uh, was overly requesting, I'm sorry, overtly requesting the king uh, to do was to come to another feast uh, the next day, it's hard to see how the king could reasonably have refused her invitation. This is all the more true since the purpose of the feast was to, quote, do as the king had said. So this third banquet, by this time, why are they there? They're there because the kings demanded it. And the king is now on, on, on public twice saying, I'll give you whatever you want, up to half of the kingdom, meaning I'll give you what you want. He's gone on record now saying it twice, not once, but twice. That's the point. Um, Let's see, uh, do as the king says, uh, that is uh, to reveal her uh, petition. Curiosity alone would have made it hard for the king to stay away. Yet if the king came to a second feast, he was implicitly agreeing in advance to grant her wish and fulfill her request, whatever it, it was. He did it twice. If he tried to back out at this point, there would have been three public um, uh, strikes against him because the second banquet would be the third. He would lose a great deal of face if he went back on, on such a public and repeated promise. It seemed that Esther had, led her, had laid her plans well and executed them with patience, care, and cunning. And so while it, on the surface it might look like she lost her nerve in reality, brothers and sisters, this is a woman of God using her position in the situation, the culture of Persia, to advance God's cause in a masterful way. And brothers and sisters, this leads us then to the point of this little section and where we see the boldness of faith. Incredible boldness of this woman. Recall in chapter 4, we, we began, actually the first couple chapters, where Esther is, is, is just like her, her uncle or her uh, cousin, you know, not, um, not being distinct, not being separate, but not practicing Judaism, basically having been assimilated by the Persian culture. But then in chapter 4, her cousin, you know, reminds her of the covenant promises of God and the character of their God, the person and promises of God. And brothers and sisters, that transformed her. Last week we saw, I'll reference it again. Growth in your walk with God does not come from you doing things. Understand that. You, I've, I've got a bad temper. I need to memorize scriptures on temper. I'm struggling with lust. I need to memorize scriptures with this. I need to do these things. I need to do all these things. That will make me more holy. That will make me more godly. Brothers and sisters, that will make you twice the son of, of hell, right? Growing in grace does not occur when you and I do things. 
It's not ex opera operata, right? It's not in the doing, the deed is done. That's a Roman Catholic doctrine. We don't believe that. Just because you memorize scripture, have quiet times, read the word, listen to God's word, that's not going to grow you. That's not going to save you. In fact, if you're not trusting in Christ alone, it'll condemn you, right? So what is it that grew her? What is it that grew her? Well, those, those means, not that we throw those means out, those means opened her eyes to behold the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of God. That's what grows in grace. Christ said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw men to me. Carson, I've referenced this many times, says that, guys, that goes way beyond just his crucifixion. If you and I, if Christ is lifted up in our, in our minds, in our hearts, if we see who he is, if we grow in our understanding of his greatness and his glory, you will grow in grace. And that's what happened with Esther. Christ, God, his person, and his promises were exalted before her. And she saw, this is the real God. And all of a sudden now, she has a faith. This phenomenal, bold faith. You say, well, in what way is this bold faith? Well, look at the context, chapter 4. What does that bold faith lead her to do? Well, we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, notice it. Go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. That's an important statement. I and my maids also will fast in the same way. Brothers and sisters, in the ancient world, and even today, there are different fasts. Today, you might have a day fast, which means you don't eat during the day. Islam does this. You don't eat during the day, but at nighttime, you can eat as much as you want. When the sun goes down, you eat. That's a fast. It's a day fast. She says here, a night and day fast. You know what that means? That means she would not touch water or food for three solid days. Now think about that for a second. And we read there on, in chapter 5, uh, verse 1, on, not after. Now, so the fast is done. She's now eaten some food, got some water. She feels a whole lot better. She's restored her strength. Now she goes to the king after the third day. No, she was in a horrible state. What would a person look like if they didn't, don't drink water or eat for three days? What would they look like? They wouldn't look very pretty, would they? They look gaunt. They, so that's why when he saw her, he said, what's wrong? Not only was she there risking her life, but she would not have looked very good by any stretch of the imagination. But brothers and sisters, this is the boldness of faith. Before, I mean, you would think if she's going to try to go and get the heart of the king to do what she wants, she'd go back and practice chapter 2 and chapter 3. All the things that the, the woman spent a whole year prepping themselves, gaining weight, getting pretty, the whole bit, so they could go in to see the king in chapter 2, right, or 3. You'd think that's what she'd do. She didn't do that. She fasted for three days, and then in the, most, in the worst condition you could imagine, she goes and, and approaches the king to, and hoping that she'll call him up. Brothers and sisters, there's a very good chance that, she would, that he wouldn't call her up because she looked so horrible. Man, that, get away from you, you wench, you horrible-looking being. Whatever, right? I'm not saying that that's good, but that's maybe what he would do. But that's not what Esther did. Esther went in her weakness and her frailty. But when we're weak, brothers and sisters, trusting in God, that's when we're strong. 
Esther went with a renewed faith, brothers and sisters, understanding that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors nor favor to men of ability, Ecclesiastes 9. She went there knowing that it's not her who's going to change his heart. It's going to be God. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. God turns it wherever he wishes. She went there understanding that the only way that, that this man, her husband, is going to change, is going to uh, listen to her, is if God makes him change it. So she went there looking like she did because she was trusting in the Lord alone. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? That's the boldness of faith. If you and I knew that this could be your death, you better go and please this person. If I gave you that homework assignment, tomorrow you're going to be brought before a person, and if you don't please them, they're going to kill you on the spot. I dare say you and I would start doing research online. Who's the person? Oh, his name's so-and-so. What is he like? What doesn't she or he, she? We'd do all of that. Guess what Esther would do? She'd fast and pray. What would Christ do? He'd fast and pray. What ought we to do? Brothers and sisters, we ought to fast and pray. We ought to be a people who are bold in faith and step out in faith. That's the beautiful picture of the first eight verses. Like I said, a sermon in and of itself. Through faith, brothers and sisters, faith resting upon God and his promises, the believer is able to see this world as it really is, as God sees it. And in that context, monsters become manageable. Mountains of fear, doubt, guilt, and worry are moved. And lions, the emblem of the Persian kings, as you see a picture of up there, lions become kittens. That's the boldness of faith. Now that leads us then to the second section, 9 through 13, Haman's disdain. From this, we learn of the the insatiable nature of sin. Verse 9, following the first banquet, then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. Now, there's a reason he went out pleased of heart, because we've seen Haman's besetting sin, his weakness, his character flaw, is he wants public recognition. That's what Haman longs for, right? So he left a banquet where he and the king were the audience. So he left that banquet thrilled on cloud nine. But because, brothers and sisters, this flaw, this sinful proclivity in Haman became everything to him because that was what drove him, all it would take was, is, is to see an insignificant, no-named person not give him the public recognition that he wants and his life will be ruined. Notice verse Six. So Haman came in, or uh, so Haman came in, I'm sorry, uh, uh, where are we at? Nine. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he did not publicly stand up or tremble before him. So it's not about bowing. Those thinking, oh, he didn't do it because he was afraid or because he didn't want to worship. He didn't stand on this point. He's not standing, he's not giving him the reverence that the king had uh, commanded. Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Brothers and sisters, this brother, or this man, Haman, is driven by public uh, recognition. If you look at chapter 6, and we'll look at it next week, remember when Haman was given the choice, hey, how, how should I honor a person 
Who honors me? Who I want to please? That's what the king asked Haman. And we read in chapter 6. So Haman came to the king. What was to be done for the man who wanted to honor? And Haman said, whom would the king want to honor but me? <laughs> so he answers. Notice what he answers. He doesn't say money, wealth, power, kingdoms. He doesn't say any of that. Let them bring a royal robe which the king has worn, the horse on which he rode, on whose, which, on whose head a royal crown has been placed. Let the robe and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble princes. Let them array the man whom the king desires to honor and lead them on horseback through the city and proclaim before everybody, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king desires to honor. That was Haman's weakness. Because that was his weakness. Sin, take an opportunity through that. That was his chink in his armor. What happens to, uh, to that? It was so inflated. So great that even though this man was the second most powerful man in the kingdom, people everywhere he went stood or bowed before him to honor him. Even though he was one of two people selected by the most powerful, by the queen of the most powerful nation in the world at the time, when he walks out, he sees this insignificant Jewish individual. And he can't live in that world. How insatiable is our sin? It'll never be met. It's incredible, brothers and sisters. Sin makes us into animals. 2 Peter chapter 2. But, like, but, um, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct, Peter is describing given, people given over to sin. He calls them unreasonable, irrational animals. Driven by instinct. That's what sin does. Sin just once and once and once and once. Notice verse 10. And Haman controlled himself. However, went to his house and sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. It's interesting that he would share all that because that's what he wants. Haman also said, even Esther, the queen, lets, lets no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she has prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited to her by her with the king. Yet, all of this does not satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Brothers, watch, out, watch over your heart with all diligence. Sin is insatiable. Uh, Proverbs thirty fifteen, great verse. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. Incredible. In other words, like sin. Sin all at once. It, it just, it, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more, give me more. All you can do. You could have everything you'd ever want, but if, if you, what is it, Carnegie? Right? This wealthy, wealthy man, what are you longing for? One more penny. I got to get another penny. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace to watch over our hearts. But more importantly, understand, if this is true, and you live in a world where we referenced this last week or the week before that, where Satan is uh, uh, manipulating his servants, his people, people who are not saved are bound by Satan. They're blind in their understanding. They are his tools. And he, he um, promises them all these great things if they serve his will. Brothers and sisters, if sin cannot be, uh, cannot be um, um, satisfied, then understand you live in a world that hates Christ 
and hates Christianity, and there's no compromise you or me or us that we could ever make that would stop them from hating Christ. Embrace homosexuality, they'll still hate you. Embrace, name all the different isms going around. They'll still hate you as long as you represent Christ. Islam, throw homosexuals off buildings, and the liberals will, in our land, the non-believers in our land, not liberals, non-believers will say, that's all right. That's their culture. But have a preacher in Canada stand up and say what God's word says, and we'll imprison him. Why the disparity? Because Satan hates Christ and his servants hate Christ. And no matter what concessions we make, we'll never make enough for them until Christ is gone and we are dug gone. Understand that, the insatiable nature of sin. And that then leads us then to Mordecai's peril, verse 14. And this is where I grab from uh, this chapter the theme of this sermon. Verse 14, then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet, and the advice pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. The word in the Hebrew for gallows is etz. Okay, and that is the word for tree. So there's a lot of debate as to what these gallows were. Is she saying um, build a scaffold fifty feet high so he'll hang upon it? It's possible. You could interpret that, that verse in that way very well. However, the primary form of execution in Persia at the time was impaling, where they would skewer an individual lengthwise, not sideways, but lengthwise from his bum up through his neck, and he would hang there until he died. Okay, that was the, the primary means. So it could very well be we're going to erect a 50-foot pole on which Mordecai would be impaled. Okay, doesn't matter. Either way, tell you what, guys, what an incredible picture. We're going to return to it in the next chapter. Incredible picture of Jesus Christ. Just as Christ was lifted up on a tree and we look upon him, whoever is, uh, his goal is for Mordecai to be lifted up on a tree as a picture of death and curse. Okay, uh, we'll return to that. But brothers and sisters, I want you at this moment with the time that we've got left, to have you think about the context of this chapter in Mordecai. Mordecai is an official in the Persian court. He's a judge. So he would have known what's going on here. So let's go back in time, review. This is Mordecai's life. Mordecai, being a compromised, compromised Jew, single-handedly brought condemnation to the entire Jewish race in 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 uh, Persia at this time by not uh, submitting to the king's decree to give honor to, uh, to Haman, right? He's the one who we can blame. Well, in that context, chapter 4, God brings to mind these glorious truths about his person and his promises, and it radically changed Mordecai. Now he becomes this man of faith. Okay? So what does he do? He communicates with Esther. Esther says, I'm fasting. So what does he do? He fasts for three days. Now for him, the fast is over. His walk with God is deeper, closer than it's ever been in his life. Before, when he was a worldly Jew, what happened? Well, you know what happened. Now the Jews are condemned in 11 months. But now that he's closer to God than perhaps he's ever been in his life, closer to Christ than he's ever been in his walk, you know what the very next thing happened? Eleven months 
till his execution was shortened to 24 hours. You understand that? Historically, in this chapter, look at the timeline. The very next thing that occurred in Mordecai's life after he fasted for three days and three nights, no food, no drink, serving God, fellowshipping with God, honoring God, was that God now shortened his lifespan to 24 hours. Yeah, makes you sort of think of George Bailey, It's a Wonderful Life. Remember that? He prayed for the first time. And then that one guy, Martinis, or whatever the name of the place is, slugged him in the face. And as he gets up, do you remember what he says? That's what you get for praying to God. How many of you have ever felt that way? Man, Lord, all I want to do is serve you. And the more I serve you, it seems as though the more flack I get. Well, that's because you've forgotten what we've learned at the very beginning, that God uses trial to mold and shape faith. That's the only way he grows faith. But we forget that. And so when bad things happen to us, we begin looking at our record, our performance, and saying, God, hasn't my performance been good enough for you? Why would you do this to me? What's the answer? Now you know James 1 and, and, and Romans. What's the, uh, oh, what's the answer? Because I love you. You've entrusted to me your soul. I'm going to grow that soul. And the way the soul is grown on this side of the grave is through trial. Incredible. Brothers and sisters, that's the way of providence. God's providence is designed to to bring you and me in our lives, to bring you and me to the place where, we, where, where, where there's no more of us. We are unable. We must trust Christ alone. That's the way of God's providence. It's always been. I referenced this a couple weeks back. Great an- analogy, Lazarus' death. Remember Lazarus' death when Jesus saw Ma- Martha? What's the first thing Martha did? She rebuked him. Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But yet, the truth be known, if you look at John 11, John knew Lazarus was sick and he he waited two more days so he would die. The text is very clear on that. Jesus knew Lazarus was sick, so he delayed three days. And do you know why the text says he delayed three days? Three times it says this. You can't miss it. Verse 2, 3, and 5. He delayed three times. I'm sorry. uh, Three times it says he delayed two days because he loved Jesus. Lazarus, and he loved Mary and Martha. He loved them. Wait a second. You're telling me because of his love for this man and his sisters, Christ let him die. Exactly. Why? How does that uh, comport? Well, the answer is found in verse 21 or verse uh, 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, This sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Do you understand, brothers and sisters, why did he delay so that the Son would be glorified? What does it mean to be glorified? To be glorified means that his character is felt and seen and understood by us. The glory of God means this weightiness of his being. God is a glorious God, which means if he's sovereign, it means something. If he's holy, it means something. That's what it means to be glorified. Okay, or to be a man of glory. So, brothers and sisters, why did, God, why did Jesus wait? So that Lazarus, Mary, and Martha would come to a greater understanding of who Christ is. That's the way of providence. That's how God works his providence in this world, in your life. Do you understand that? 
God's providence in this life is not designed for you and I to sit on, on easy chairs and to sit on, you know, uh, you know, easy, rich, wealthy situations. What's God's will in this life? Is that you and I would come to a greater apprehension of the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ and God and his gospel. That is love. Piper, well, a very powerful sermon on this passage, said these things. John Piper wrote, uh, said, Love lets him die because his death will let them see the glory of God. This is one of the reasons why Christianity is hard to believe in for many people. Because it defines love in a way that is so different. In our culture, we think love is giving people what they need. Have you ever seen a child getting everything that they want by a parent? Is that love? Absolutely not. Right? Give him everything he ever wants. You want, you want candy for breakfast? You got it. You want candy for lunch? You got it. That's not love. It's not giving them what they want. It's giving them what they need. And what do we need most, brothers and sisters? So what is love? Love means giving, uh, giving us what we need most. What do we need most? What human beings need most is a full and endless experience of the glory of God. Look at the way he says it in verse 14, 15. You don't have the text before you, but listen or read it carefully. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad. In the Greek, I might even, um, uh, let's see, it might even sound stronger if we translated chairo, I rejoice. That's what the word is. I rejoice that I was not there. So that, and here the counterpart to God's glory, to seeing the glory of God, namely that you would b- uh, believe. I skipped, sorry. Instead, he says the human counterpart to the seeing of God's glory of God, namely that you would uh, believe. I'm glad I was not here so that you would believe, that you would trust, that you would, that you would behold my glory and, and that would result in trust and faith and reliance upon God. There are two great purposes of the universe. The demonstration of the glory of God in Jesus Christ and believing humans. And so Christ here says, I love them, therefore I'm not going to go. I'm going to let him die. I'm going to put him through the horrible four days, or for you it might be 40 years, because I have something to show them they could never see any other way. The main point of this text is that love is doing what you have to do to bring people to the fullest knowledge of and enjoyment of the glory of God. And that's what you see here with Mordecai. Hey, God, back up, man. He's prayed for three days, hasn't eaten, drunk for anything. Reward that devotion. That's what the world says. That's what our heart says. That's what our our performance um, heart says. He's performed. Now give him a treat. Brothers and sisters, don't you understand? The will of God or the way of God's providence on this side of the grave is to constantly bring us to places where all we have is Christ, where all we see is Christ, that all we want is Christ. That's glorious. I can't tell you, I'm I'm not the best looking guy in the world, you know that, I can tell you that. And I'm not the most uh, suave, debonair person like some people on my session. Okay, it's not me. When I was in college, I had, I had woman after woman, girl after girl, what do you even call it? You know, I go, yeah, thanks, but leave me alone, right? 
And then I met this weird woman who evidently was not repulsed by me, and she married me. Um, But that being said, guys, you know what happened every time I was repulsed? I I joined the monastery. That's what we called it. I would say, I'm done with women. I'm going to say, I'm going to, I'm going to see Christ. That's all I'm going to do. My life will be devoted to serving Jesus Christ. That, that's it. I'm done seeking women. I'm done seeking name it. I'm just going to seek Jesus Christ. I look back on all those days and I go, praise God, because those were some of the most intimate, quiet times I ever had. Talk to people of cancer, say the same thing in Christ. Talk to people who lose jobs in Christ, say the same thing. My walk was never closer to God. I praise God for the difficulties because that's when I became so much um, um, aware of, of this facet of God or that facet of God. That's the way of God's providence in your life. So with Paul and with James, knowing that the testing of your faith produces that, let us be a people who right now in fair weather mend the sails and prepare And so not be shocked when the time comes. Can you say with Paul, we know that the testing of our faith produces that. Do you believe that today? If you believe it, then brothers and sisters, don't prepare to be hit. No. But have the heart that says, Lord, I loose my hands on everything that this world has of value. My health, my wealth, my marriage, my children, all of it's loose, God. I only want you Christ, that's the way of providence. And brothers and sisters, as you and I do that, may God give us the grace, therefore, to be a people who would not be waylaid by the difficulties of life, but that rather we would be a people who, like the saints, the brothers and sisters in Smyrna, whose chief export was myrrh, the more you beat them, the better they smell. That's, that's myrrh, right? The more you beat it, the better it smells. May we be a people that the more this world attacks us and beats us down, the more we're assailed by our, even our own sin, and we, oh, Lord, forgive me, and we lead to re- repentance. May that lead to the beautiful aroma of us trusting, loving, knowing Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's, again, the way of providence. I've got a couple things that struck me down there um, in terms of the uh, redemptive things. I'll let you read those on your own and fellowship around those on your own. But um, brothers and sisters, let's go to the table now. Let's pray first. Father, what a delight it is to look at your word and, and see this beautiful unity, this, this, the way of faith and, and the boldness of faith that comes from beholding the promises and the person of you, our, our God. Lord, t- to see the the dangers of sin and how insatiable my desire for an easy day would be or my desire for more money would, would be. Lord, it'll, it'll, it'll never be satisfied. But then, O oh Lord, to come and see, because of that, those two truths juxtaposed, we see what you did in Mordecai's life and we rejoice and praise you that you do that in your people's life, that you keep us from the sin we so eagerly desire and protect us, O oh Lord, with, with that hedge of thorns that keeps us from the sin of our hearts. But, Lord, gives us a greater longing and a greater hunger and a thirst for Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray this day that you give that hunger to everyone here. If they do not know you, open their eyes that they might see their need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. But, Lord, to all of us here, 
whether we are, are um, just having great uh, walk with you deep and, and rich, O oh Lord, or whether we have been um, whoring after uh, the nations. Lord, humble us, break our wayward will, and make us a people who would find our greatest hope, delight, and joy in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Lord, we go to this meal to give expression to that very prayer now. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.